entitled tonight's message, The Tower of Babel. Uh, why? Well, when I get done with tonight, you'll kind of know why. Um, once reform hits, everybody argues about everything, and it's just chaos as far as everybody running everywhere and having their own ideas and starting their own communities and doing everything, and it's, it almost seems just like mass confusion. But I do believe that God uh, had his hand in so much of it by moving it and changing courses and leading to some necessary reform for sure. But uh, as we begin, I would like to uh, just share with you a, a real quick personal story. Um, my, my life is a testimony to what you're about to hear. Uh, here's what I mean. I am a multi-denominational guy. Uh, just kind of a, a show of hands. How many of you have a tradition in maybe anybody Episcopalian background? Anybody got that? A few of you. How about Reformed? Anybody got Reformed background? A couple. Uh, Catholic background. Any of you guys got a little bit more of you? Uh, Methodist? Any Methodists? Okay. Uh, Baptist background? All right. What about charismatic? All right. See, so, okay, we are a conglomeration of everything. Well, that is all embodied in me. I started out when my parents got married. My dad wasn't uh, involved in a family that went to church at all. My mom had a four-square background. Then when they got together and moved up here, we started attending what was called the Assembly of God Church. I was raised Assembly of God till I was 16 and went to Assembly of God school. When I was 16, I was given the choice to change churches because I could drive. I changed churches and I went to a Calvary Chapel church called uh, Warehouse Christian Ministries down in Sacramento. I was there for a while and then I ended up switching over to a church uh, that was independent. It, had, uh, it was a non-denominational church. Then when I met my wife, we went to First Covenant of Sacramento and then I became the pastor of a conservative Baptist church. So, needless to say, I have a rather varied background and how all that would come together in one human being is really answered in today's message. Where in the world did all that stuff come from and how can we just move from one to the next? Clearly times have changed. Because you don't do that 500 years ago. When you have a difference of opinion, it gets ugly. You better be willing to die for it. And that is some of the things that we are going to learn tonight. But I want to begin with a couple passages in Scripture and a question. So would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It's page 827. 827. The Bible's handed to you. 827. That should make it a little easier. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 and I want you to think of just one question as we read this tonight how are people saved how do you get to know Jesus and get to heaven just think about that question as we read a couple passages we begin in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 it says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, uh, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he, what? Chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he, what? Predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he now freely has given us in the one he loves in him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us this mystery of his will 
according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when their times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also what? Chosen, having been what? Predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What? <laughs> what, did, what did he just say? What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about salvation. What did you hear? Well, some of you heard one thing. Other people heard something else. Some of you kept hearing the word predestined. Before the beginning of time, God orchestrated everything. In other words, those that are saved. That was always the plan. You're always going to be saved. Those that are not saved, they were never going to get saved. That was always according to the plan. Others of you heard other phrases. Phrases such as when you believed or having heard the truth, you were marked with the Holy Spirit. So what would you hear? Well, you take all that and you throw in a verse that you're probably a little bit more familiar with because of football. Can you turn with me to John 3.16? That'd be great. Some guy has to hold up the sign all the time. So John 3.16, we are now bouncing back to the left in the Bibles, page 752. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John 3.16. Very, very popular verse, but we're going to read 16 through 18, and then I want you to tell me how people get saved whatever that means right so john three sixteen. for god so loved what the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever whoever believes in him shall not what perish but have eternal life for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What would you hear? A lot about belief, right? So how are people saved? It is this question that will just begin to fire out all throughout the last 500 years of history where everyone says, is it predestined? Is it, you don't even have any choice in the matter? Or is it, no, now God lays this lesson before you and you say you accept or you don't accept. What does it mean? How does it happen? Well, people really go head to head on this issue. People die for this issue. So what's the answer? Well, let's take a look at history. We left off last week in the mid-1500s, okay? This is when the Protestant church snapped apart from the Catholic church. Remember, it's the whole reason why I'm not wearing a collar and this isn't a Catholic church, right? The only reason we're Protestants is because of what we talked about last week. A guy named Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and these guys, they all led to what's called the Reformation. If you missed any of that, make sure to download it online or grab a free CD or whatever on the way out. But we are now in the mid-1500s, and we live in 2009. So what happened in the last 500 years? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. Remember, in the mid-1500s, the Catholic Church locked down their theology that would last for 400 years in a thing called the Council of Trent in 1545. On the Protestant side, we already have four big movements going. We have the Reformed Church, the Lutheran Church, 
the Anabaptists, which we know are the Mennonites and the Amish. And who else? The Anglicans. Now, the Anglicans are Catholic and Reformed mushed together. Okay, so we got those four guys. Those four major movements are already on the scene in Europe. Now, when you hear all these movements where you're going to hear this, this religion started, this faith started, this denomination started, you're immediately going to want to judge. You're just going to immediately go, boy, those people are really stupid. I, I get it. And you know what? You're probably going to be right a lot of the time. But I need you to look at them in their context. Almost all movements begin in reaction to something else. What was going on at the time, and why did they feel the need to put their lives on the line? You have to understand, just starting a new... Nowadays, nobody cares what you are. If you walk around and you start talking to people at Starbucks, and they go, what are you? I'm Methodist. Really? What are you? I'm nothing. Nobody cares. It's not a big deal. Back then, it was a massive deal. You don't just flip-flop and do whatever you want. You don't just automatically start changing your denomination, not unless you're ready to die big deal so before you pass judgment and assume that they're just being silly you need to consider them in their context i'm not telling you that they're right i'm just saying make sure to back up and consider why they did what they did because they thought it was worth enough to die for the fill in the blank in front of you is the big question at least in my heart because it's a question we still ask the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this When is God honored in unity? And when is God honored in purity? Got the question? When is God honored in unity? Meaning, when are we supposed to just put our differences aside and come together? And when are we honoring God by splitting apart and saying, what you believe is absolutely against the Bible and I will not stand for it? What are we supposed to do? There's guys in the Old Testament where when they saw something wicked, this guy comes flying through with a spear, jams it through into the ground, kills everybody. God went, well done. Right? When are you that guy? And when are you the guy that all the times Paul the Apostle kept saying, unify, unify, stop breaking over everything, stop arguing, stop having so many disagreements. You're squabbling about nothing. Let it go. When are you that guy? Do you understand how it moves through history? Where are we right now? What's going on in the church where we need to break and where are the places in the church that we need to just mellow out and spend more time together and quit arguing about surface issues? It's a big question. I want you to consider that as we dive into it. In the early 1500s, a guy comes to power by the name of Henry VIII. Anybody ever mentioned or heard about this guy? Henry VIII, this guy's completely famous for beheading people. Really is kind of his gig. He had six wives and three kids. A lot of his wives, he just chopped their heads off and kind of moved on. That's the whole Anne Boleyn, that whole thing that went on. Um, uh, it had a couple different wives with famous names. Jane Seymour, I think it's a different one. But uh, that was her name. I mean, a bunch of Catherine of Aragon, these different folks. Well... He had uh, three kids and a right-hand man. His right-hand man's name was Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was famous for a couple things. Now, even though his boss or his buddy, Henry VIII, forced them to make him Archbishop of Canterbury, which wasn't fair, but he becomes in power, and he does two interesting things. First thing, he translates the Bible into English for the first time and puts one in every, Bible, in every church in England and gives it to the people. That's the first time the people got a chance to read it in their own language. Second thing he does is he writes and edits and compiles a book called The Common Book of Prayer, 
what is used even today. So 500 years later, people are still using his book to do their liturgy. Now, then Henry dies. Eventually, one of his daughters takes the throne. Her name is Mary of Tudor. How do we know her? Anybody familiar with that name? No, you probably know her better as Bloody Mary. Anybody heard that name before? Okay, there you go. Bloody Mary, uh, underneath Henry VIII, the Protestants were in vogue. They got the power. When Mary showed up, Catholics got the power, and she persecuted the Protestants. As a matter of fact, she killed 300 of them and burned them alive or had them beheaded. Uh, That's why she's called Bloody Mary. It was an absolute slaughter of Reformed pastors all over uh, Europe. So then it shifted to her sister, Queen Elizabeth. And Queen Elizabeth then put the reformers back in power. So everything, whether or not your church was persecuted, had everything to do with who was on the throne. This person's on the throne, yay! This person on the throne, boo! I mean, it was just really like that. It kind of ebbed and flowed. It's a pretty crazy time. But Catholicism locked in in two major countries, France and Spain. In England, it went Reformation, all these other movements. Well, then a guy comes to the throne by the name of King James. This guy is a little bit different, a little bit eccentric. King James, who was already king of Scotland, becomes king of England as well. Uh, Very strange dude. His leadership style was sometimes he was really intense and sometimes super kickback. Bisexual guy, really unusual. Kind of, I don't know how much you do any study into this guy, but really kind of an unusual guy. Underneath him, the Reformation gets more and more advanced. Well... It's because of him that a new Bible ends up getting translated, and guess what? We now have the King James Bible. That's all from this guy. Now, he became very anti-Catholic, and you go, well, why are you so anti? Well, they tried to kill him. (laughs) That'll make anybody anti-Catholic. He found out about what's called the gunpowder plot, okay? They literally put a bunch of kegs of gunpowder underneath him, and they were going to blow him up. And he found out about it and didn't like them. Well, another group started rising up. Can't blame him. Another group rose up that was incredibly influential, and they were called the Puritans. Everybody familiar with the Puritans? Now, the Puritans, these guys were all like Lutheran and Calvinistic, but they wanted to get back to living a certain lifestyle. They wanted to get back to uh, modesty, and they wanted to get back to, let's get rid of the theater, because those guys are promoting immorality, and they're, they're um, acting, and they're being fake. And then they started saying, well, we've got to go total sober life. Now, they didn't mean not drink. They meant don't get drunk. They all drank. They just didn't want to get drunk. So they were known as the Puritans, the idea of purifying. Well, two of their guys changed how everybody read the Bible. One of the guy's names was John Bunyan. Anybody remember what he wrote? John Bunyan wrote, yeah, Pilgrim's Progress. That was a huge book, big deal. The other guy was John Milton, and he wrote Paradise Lost. That actually changed how people read the Bible. They read it in a very different way because of his writing. So those two guys absolutely changed how people looked at Scripture. But then some folks started raising up in the Puritan movement, and they believed that baptism was super important. So people called them what? Baptists. Well, meanwhile, the Lutherans are the biggest deal in town. They're huge. Well, Martin Luther had his right-hand man, if you remember from last week, named Philip Melanchthon. They didn't agree on everything. They had arguments about good works and grace and stuff like that. Well, after Luther dies, Philip's kind of in charge. Well, people think he's not doing a good job. So they begin to break. There's the strict Lutherans, 
and the Philippists. And they had this big argument about what's legit and communion and how it's supposed to work. Well, eventually, a man rose up in this Lutheran movement by the name of Jacob Arminius. Now, Jacob Arminius was a strict Calvinist Dutch pastor and professor. He studied under Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza. In other words, you don't get much more Calvinistic than this guy. Well, he was told that there was a man teaching somewhere that was arguing with the concept of predestination. Remember, the Calvinistic position was that you are predestined to go to heaven. You are predestined to go to hell. You don't have any choice in the matter. Well, this other guy was teaching. I don't think that's really how it is. I think that Jesus Christ was predestined to show up. I think there's a bunch of stuff predestined. But when it comes down to faith, everyone has a choice to respond to the gospel. Well, that was absolute heresy. And everyone's like, you got to go shut this guy down. So they grab Jacob Arminius and they say, you go debate him and shut him down. And then we'll, t- we'll label him a heretic. So in order to get ready for his debate, he starts studying his work. Guess what happens? He gets convinced of the other guy's point of view. And he's like, uh, guys, real quick, he's right. And they're like, what would you just say? Well, I said he's right. No, he's not. They began to call his group remonstrance. Well, they began to lay out five points that they believed. They said these five things. We don't know fully how choice and predestination works, but we're leaning towards the choice concept. Number two, they said Jesus died for everybody. Now, not everybody gets saved, but he died for everybody. That means some grace is being lost on the cross. Number three, they said humanity is incapable of good. Humans can't do anything on their own account. God has to do it with his grace. Number four, they said you can resist God's grace. If God gives you, extends grace to you, you can say no. And five, they said, I have no idea if the Bible teaches that you're eternally saved or not. I'm not seeing it. There's a lot of arguments both ways. Well, they lay down these five opinions. That is not okay to the Calvinists. So they launched the Synod of Dort, which I don't know why they have lame names for everything. Because all I can hear is the word dork every time I hear it. So in 1618, they have the Synod of Dort. They meet together with a huge assembly and they said, we got to know what we believe. And they laid down the five points of Calvinism. So if you've ever heard of somebody going, are you a five point Calvinist? That's what they're talking about. They said this, number one, total depravity, human nature is too corrupted to do anything on your own. Number two, unconditional election, the elect or believers are chosen by God and his will. And there's nothing you can do to choose otherwise. Number three, limited atonement. Jesus did not die for everybody. He died only for the elect, the chosen people, because why in the world would he die for someone that's never going to go to heaven anyway? Number four irresistible grace you cannot resist god's will and grace in your life and finally last one perseverance of the saints there's no way god will ever let his children fall from grace you are eternally saved now what happened to the other guys they killed them all so we win you lose you die they killed all the leaders and then they exiled all the pastors that taught that All the people that attended those churches were heavily fined just for attending the church. How dare you attend a church where a pastor teaches that? They they kicked everybody else and exiled them out of the country or they could face life imprisonment. So, like I said, 
a lot of times people ask me, so is it predestination or free will? And I kind of smile because that's a complicated question. And back then, people died for the answer to that. It all depended on what you believe. Now, at this same time, three massive movements rise up, the 1600s and 1700s. Three huge answers to the world's mysteries began to get thrown out. One of them was philosophy. Right. Philosophy began to take a massive movement in Rene Descartes. Anybody ever heard of that guy? Rene Descartes. He's the one that said, I think, therefore I am that guy. Well, also, the other guy is Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant said, you can't ever know anything for sure. There's no such thing as absolute truth. We can't really know the world around us. Well, this philosophy concept began to get everybody stirred up. They're like, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe this whole religion stuff is totally bogus. I don't, I don't know. Maybe there is no God. Maybe we can never know God if he's really there. And everybody kind of goes in a tailspin. Well, a second movement rises up, kind of a grassroots, non-intellectual movement, because that was an intellectual movement. The non-intellectual movement was a grassroots movement of God still speaks to regular people. I can have a movement. I can have a vision. I can have the Holy Spirit talk to me right here, right now, get new revelation. And people began to spring up like that. Well, one of those guys that sprung up was a man by the name of George Fox. In 16, I'd say 1680, he comes up with this idea that all churches are an abomination to God. He's looking around and going, everybody's bogus. All your church services are ruining everything. The fact that you tell us when to come in, you tell us when to start, you tell us when to pray, you tell us when we're supposed to worship, you tell us what some pastor guy is supposed to tell us some stuff. No, this is bogus. The Holy Spirit gets to dictate what he wants to do when he wants to do. So you know what we're going to do? We're all going to sit here quietly until he moves. Ready, go. And then everyone just waited. Now, if the Holy Spirit prompted you, you were supposed to say something. You're supposed to pray or give a revelation or have a vision. But if you didn't, you're supposed to just be quiet. So they would just wait for hours. If they had a disagreement, everybody had to be unanimous or wait on the Spirit. They just table it. Those were known as the Quakers. Anybody ever seen the Quakers? You buy their little oatmeal box, right? They have the little picture. It's got the tie. Okay, that's a guy. When they used to worship, they got so intense in their worship, they would tremble. That's why they were called the Quakers. Now, one famous Quaker that you may be familiar with is a guy that later on, is, his name was William Penn. And William Penn launched the state of Pennsylvania. And he was a Quaker, and he had always been persecuted for his beliefs. So he launched Pennsylvania with the idea of religious tolerance and love, and he named his capital city what? Philadelphia, because it means the city of brotherly love. That's where it all comes from. So the third major movement that came out, you had philosophy, you had the experiential guys, then you had the pietists, the people that wanted to go back to holy living. Now, even though they're experiential Lutherans, the idea was sanctification, living like Jesus, changing your life to order according to scripture. Well, one of the guys in 1730 a young man rose up in a family that had 19 kids. That's a lot of kids. One out of 19. His name was John Wesley. John Wesley had heard about this idea of this holy living movement. And so he's out there and he joins his brother's club at Oxford. He just have a little club where everyone talks about God and everything. Well, his brother Charles Wesley, who is famous for all the hymns that he wrote that have been sung throughout the years, had started this holy club. Well, everyone made fun of him. Because they signed a covenant with each other that said they were going to live 
according to scriptural principles to an extreme way. They were not going to do this, not going to do this, not going to do this. They were going to do this, this, this. And they met three hours every day to study scripture. They were intense, hardcore. Well, everyone made fun of them. Nice little holy club. What are you guys all into methods? What are you Methodists? Oh, well, that took a ring in their mind. They began to take that with pride. We're Methodists. Well, as this little club begins to disband, um, he gets a job in the New World, right? Because they're all in England. So he says, New World in a place called Georgia, which is obviously one of our states. He's going to come over and be a pastor. Well, on the ship heading out, he becomes the chaplain of the ship. He's floating to go to the New World, and all of a sudden the ship runs into trouble. There's a group on board called the Moravians. The Moravian people were singing quietly, singing hymns, being peaceful, and he's freaking out. He's like, I'm going to die. You know, he's running all over the place. He didn't understand why they were so peaceful. Well, they had bought into this holiness kind of movement, but they had more of a peace. He began to question his salvation when he got to the mainland. Well, he sets up his pastor. And he fails. He's a horrible pastor in Georgia. He sets up and he's, he's expecting his holy club. All of a sudden he has all these regular people. And he's like, what is wrong with you people? No, we're going to study the Bible every day and we're going to do this. And everyone's like, I'm not. I don't know what you're going to do, but I ain't going to do that. Well, he freaked out and he really liked this girl. He was super into this girl. And he's just like, we're going to get married and everything. She's like, you know what? I'm just not that into you. And he's like, well, that's really funny because guess what? You're not going to get communion. I'm the pastor. Okay. So you can't do that. All right. You can't shut off somebody's communion because they don't want to go out with you. So he got kicked out. Okay. So not a good pastor. Not a real, didn't do this real swell. So he goes back to England as, as a failure and he has this big experience with God where he comes to this knowledge of who God is and knowledge of grace, and he just gets lit on fire. He's so excited about Jesus Christ. Well, he starts preaching, and he grabs one of his other buddies from that holy club by the name of George Whitefield. Anybody ever heard of that guy? Well, sure enough, uh, they, get, they get tied in a little bit together, and their movement explodes. Finally, they break from Anglicanism in 1787, and they become the Methodist church now george whitefield was a famous famous preacher in america and in england another guy um well i should say he's the guy that launched open air preaching he was in the church and he's preaching and everyone's like i don't like your ideas he's like fine i'll leave he walks outside and he's like blah 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 and he starts preaching outside well everyone thought that was sacrilege you can't preach outside you got to preach in a church he's like why why? I'll talk about Jesus out there. I'll talk about Jesus in here. What do I care? It was absolute craziness. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, who are these people? Well, those two guys end up hanging out together. Well, they ended up splitting. Uh, John Wesley wasn't into the emotionalism, the fiery preaching stuff. He was a little bit more mellow. And they split over the issue of predestination versus free will. Shocker. Okay, Wesley was more free will and Whitefield was more predestination. So they, they split. Well, at the same time, obviously, if he had a chance to go to the New World, we have a new thing going on over there called the 13 Colonies. Everybody familiar with those? It all starts with this New World is founded. Now the Spanish want to get there. They send their explorers, right? Cortez, Pizarro, these guys, hardcore Catholics. They begin to start exploring. Well, Britain wants to get in on it. So England sends all their guys. They're like, yeah, we're going to go settle it too. The first two attempts to settle the New World absolutely failed. Sir Walter Raleigh had two failures back to back. They finally land in 1607 and launch a place called Virginia. 
right? Now, Virginia was named after Queen Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. That's where Virginia comes from. And then they settled Jamestown, which was named after who? But King James. And all these Puritans settle in. Well, they realize this is going to be a big job. We need a lot of labor. So in 1619, they started importing slaves from Africa. And that's where the slavery movement in America got started. Then they settled a place called Georgia in the south. And there was two main reasons to settle it. Number one, stop the Spanish from moving forward. We'll hurry up and grab it so they have to stop. Second thing, our debtors' prisons are full over there. Can't we just move all the prisoners? So Georgia was settled by all the prisoners coming over. So they had a huge debtors' prison there. Well, in the north, they wanted to settle more. So more Puritans started coming through, and they aimed for Virginia. They missed. They landed on a place called Plymouth Rock, right? Well, that's the whole Thanksgiving story. They land on Plymouth Rock. They try to set up shop. How does it go? Dismal. 50% mortality rate. 50, half of them all just died in one, one winter. Well, the Indians come in, help them out. They get established, and they begin to launch a brand new place. They end up starting Massachusetts. They end up starting Connecticut. Well, then a Baptist pastor, who initially was a good, uh, good guy, he got a little bit funky later, he comes in with some weird views. He starts saying, I don't think that if we settle a place, we should legislate what denomination you are. I don't think that's fair. Second of all, this is not our land. This is the Indians' land. So if you're going to walk in, you better treat the Indians with respect. Now, these was, this is like heresy. Everyone's like, who are you? And then he goes, I'd like to launch something in my area called democracy. Okay. Well, that was a little different for them. And he settled Rhode Island. Now, that ended, he getting a little bit funky later on because he got into this revelation study and he started talking about when Jesus was coming back and he got a little bit off. But anyway, he kind of messed up. So then the Baptists start taking hold. They start moving in on all these ships. Well, they split. General Baptists, particular Baptists. What do you think the issue is they split over? Predestination versus free will. Whoa, how weird. General Baptists believe that Jesus died for the general population everybody the particular said no he only died for the elect and so they split well in maryland all the catholics showed up and they settled mary's land that was the idea and they were just going to be catholics outside of england the only problem was only the 10 percent of them that were rich were catholic 90 percent of their help was protestant so it didn't work out all that hot and sure enough when james got kicked out they turned to anglicanism well, the other colonies were mixed, and then they had some settlement issues. King James back home, excuse me, Charles back home on the throne was absolutely upset that here they have all these colonies working independent of England. How dare you? We own you! But he had his own problems, so he couldn't get involved yet. And then something else happened. In, 19, in 1692, hysteria started breaking out over this idea that a bunch of witches showed up on the boats oh my gosh everybody's a witch everybody's a witch well they killed three of them right off the bat and they're like i swear everybody's a witch and they start freaking out now people were just caught up in emotionalism and they start going we got to kill all the witches oh my gosh well they ended up killing 20 of them they hung them 14 women six men 20 years later they went oops my bad there's no witches here sorry and they paid the families back money well you killed my person you can't just do that and they just immediately went, I'm sorry, we were in error. Okay, yeah, you were in error, and you ran around killing people. That's not okay. Those were known as the what? Salem witch trials. In the mid-1700s, 
a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards starts preaching in his uh, church. And this guy could not be more boring. I don't know if you've ever read Jonathan Edwards, but this guy writes long theological treaties, which is blah, 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 right? And he's just going on and on and on. And here's how he would do it. He would script out what he's going to say, and he would sit there, put it on his podium, and he would read monotone, not move. And he would just read it line by line. People started bursting out and weeping. They started crying and yelling out to God and, oh, I need to repent. And they're freaking out and they're coming up to the altar. And he's like, whoa, what is everybody doing? <laughs> I don't understand what you guys are doing. This is weird. Okay, he's totally caught off guard. Well, he hears about a guy named George Whitefield who's preaching over in England. So he invites him to come over and preach in his church. Then Jonathan Edwards starts crying when he's preaching. And he's like, this, there's something going on here. And it launched the Great Awakening. In America and all the colonies came together as God poured out this really weird movement where a bunch of people now a lot of it got emotional but a lot of it was just people reacting to God and it began this huge movement of renewal and a refocus on Jesus Christ well sure enough we now have the late 1700s and eventually Britain got a little angry about these colonies doing their own thing so they made sure the army is there. They taxed them heavily. They argued about land. Well, America had enough. What do you think they did? In 1775, they declared war. And July 4th, 1776, launched the Declaration of Independence. And the war began to break from England. What's so weird is during this time of progress, change, two movements launched. Unitarianism which led to transcendentalism. But Unitarian, you guys know what that is? That's the idea. Forget the whole Trinity thing, but we're going to just, can't we just all unite? Everybody's cool. All religions go to heaven kind of idea. That kicked off. And universalism. Universalism teaches everyone will get saved. There's a lot of paths that go to heaven. And the whole reason was they felt that hell wasn't very loving. Okay? So we move forward. Now, Anglicanism, when you break with England, what happens to the Church of England? What happens to all the Anglicans? They're like, uh, I think I gotta go. So they all want to move out. The ones that stayed said, we gotta change our name, and they became the Episcopalians. So in case you guys knew where those came from. Now, all these immigrants are coming in. You guys all remember the whole boats after boat after boat of people coming in, the potato famine, right? All that stuff. Ireland, Germany. Catholics start arriving in droves and sure enough by 1850 catholics were the largest religious body in america second was lutheranism well when everyone gets over here they all have dreams of starting a new world and some of them said we could totally start a new commune and we'll just have like a utopia society this will be awesome and the oneida community started anybody ever studied the oneida people y'all think they made silverware right Right? That's what I thought. <laughs> okay. No. Those are some freaky people. All you got to do is do a little Wikipedia search on Oneida, and it will scare you. They had, the, they had a massive open marriage commune, and they got really creepy. Well, it didn't last all that long, but they were one of the utopian societies. Another one was a woman by the name of Ann Lee Stanley, known as Mother Ann Lee, right? Well, guess what? In 1747, she said, I am the second coming of Christ in female form. You're like, really? She's like, well, first time he came as a man, now he's a woman. And we dance in worship. We are totally abstinent, no sex ever. 
And when we dance, we will begin to get a little emotional. And so people can't call us Quakers. They call us shakers. Oh, the shaker movement began. Here's the problem. When you start a whole concept on no one's ever allowed to have sex ever, where do the kids come from? Oops, they died out. Okay, so we need to think through a little bit. In the early 1800s, the second great awakening launched. It was not just about the emotionalism of the first one, but this was about a holy living movement of the second one. And in this movement, listen to all the places that launched movements. 1816, the American Bible Society. 1810, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. That's the first missionary Protestant movement board. American Colonization Society, that was abolition of slavery, 1817. The American Society for the Promotion of Temperance, that was the 1926 War on Alcohol. Women's Christian Temperance Union, that was all about women's rights. All these launched all of a sudden out of nowhere. Everybody stood up. Now the West began to expand and it was getting crazy. Less intellectual, more emotional. And then in 1801 in Kentucky... A Presbyterian minister launched a camp meeting in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And something weird happened. A big movement hit and people started uncontrollably weeping, uncontrollably laughing, uncontrollably running, uncontrollably barking. You ever heard any of that stuff before? All hit in Cane Ridge in Kentucky way back in uh 1801 and that's the first time you started hearing words like revival and evangelism those words came on the map the baptist and methodist took up the camp meeting idea and the revival meeting and made it their own well meanwhile the slave movement was just too much there was too many tensions the baptists and methodists they were embracing slave owners and completely trying to quiet down the whole slavery thing meanwhile the quakers are anti-slavery churches started splitting over it and then black only denominations started that's where we got the ame church the african methodist episcopal church that was the first time that got launched in 1816 well eventually it took the whole nation and in 1861 we had a civil war over the whole thing north against south the problem is is even though slavery ended up getting abolished the south just went racist and it didn't solve all the problems in the 1800s four major movements in religion launched number one a man by the name of uh william miller a pastor studying the book of daniel teaching about the book of revelation said wait a second i know when jesus is coming back he makes a time, tells everybody Jesus is going to come back in 1843. All his followers were called the Millerites because that was his last name. Everyone's can't wait for Jesus, can't wait for Jesus. Guess what happened? <laughs> Jesus didn't come. Whoops, that's awkward. <laughs> Came and went. He's gone. Then a woman by the name of Ellen Harmon White picked up as the new prophet. And in 1865 started the Seventh-day Adventist. And she had more visions and did more teaching, interest in medicine and diet and missions. Then in New York, a young man by the name of Joseph Smith came on the scene. Joseph Smith determined that all churches were false. And he proclaimed publicly that an angel by the name of Moroni came down from heaven, gave him a place to find some golden tablets. He was then given two seer stones by which he could translate the tablets as well as some spectacles or glasses. Behind a curtain, he began to read these Egyptian hieroglyphs that he had been found. 
that had been found. And he began to tell them to another guy who wrote them down. And sure enough, in 1830, the Book of Mormon was published. People just jumped on board and it launched this massive movement. He took his people from Ohio, then to Illinois. But everyone around had all these suspicions. They're like, what is with these people? They're weird. And they begin to have all these problems. Well, then, to make matters worse, he ran for president of the United States. They were like, really? You're not really going to get in power, are you? And they began to get scared. A mob attacked him and lynched him. When he died, Brigham Young took over. Everybody clear with BYU, Brigham Young University? Brigham Young took over, and he was a bit different leadership. He called it the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They moved to Utah, started an autonomous state there until America wanted the territory. They came in and took it over in 1850. In 1852, he announced that there was a vision that Smith had used and was living under called polygamy. And so he implemented polygamy into their religion, the multiple wives thing. Well, in 1857, the U.S. declared war on the Mormons. They ended up assimilating back into society. They abandoned polygamy in 1890, but their missionaries went everywhere. Then Charles Russell said, the Bible is like a spiritual code. You need a special way to look at this, to know what it means. And luckily, I know that code. He began to give all kinds of uh, teachings and understandings. He rejected the Trinity, rejected the deity of Christ. He said Jesus already returned in 1872. But the end of the world was not going to come until 1914. Guess what happened? 1914 came and went. Two years later, he died. A man by the name of Joseph Rutherford took the reins, reinterpreted his teachings, and in 1931 launched the Jehovah's Witnesses. Finally, a woman by the name of Mary Baker Eddy, a very sick woman, went to go see a doctor. His initials make you smile. He was P.P. Quimby. <laughs> he launched a view that the material world is not reality, that everything that happens in this world has to do with your perspective. And so if you're sick, you need to rework your perspective, rework your mind. And uh, this lady came in and she began to realize that the way she saw it, there was a science in the Bible that Jesus used. And if you would change your heart and change your perspective, you could change the outside world. And she, sure enough, in 1879, launched the Church of Christ Scientist, which, of course, is where we get the Christian science. Now, in America, all these cities start rising up. People are jamming into the cities to get jobs. There are, suburbia goes away and just urbanism just starts hitting and everybody's jam-packed and they're cut off from their country church and they don't have any people, their community around them. And a bunch of ministries rose up to try to meet that need. You may be familiar with the YMCA, the YWCA. That's what it all began with. Sunday school as a concept started to teach people about the Bible. Then a guy, by a shoe salesman in Chicago by the name of D.L. Moody, comes up and begins to start ministering to the inner cities. In 1878, a Methodist preacher, William Booth, launched the Salvation Army to reach out to the poor. Well, then in the late 1800s, early 1900s, liberalism kicks in again. Intellectuals sweep out of nowhere and they start questioning this Jesus. The quest for the historical Jesus starts coming out. It's the idea, maybe he's not God, maybe he's just a regular guy, why are we making too much of it, the Bible shouldn't have any miracles, all this kind of stuff. Kierkegaard, Kant, Schleiermacher, Schweitzer, all these guys begin to launch these new things. 
So in order to get back to the basics of Christianity, a movement starts about inerrancy of Scripture, divinity of Jesus, virgin birth, atonement on the cross. They wanted to get back to the fundamentals. So what were they called? Fundamentalists. In 1906, a movement hits on a mission on Azusa Street. And sure enough, the Azusa Street revival was marked with a pouring of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, miracles, all kinds of crazy outworkings of the Holy Spirit. And that launched a fire that they began to call Pentecostalism, Charismatics. And sure enough, in 1914, the Assemblies of God movement was launched. Well, meanwhile, Catholicism has their own thing going on. In the 1800s, Pope Pius IX comes to power, the longest pope in all of history. And he was a man with a good heart, but he had some very different teachings. He taught the Immaculate Conception of Mary. He said that because God knew that she was going to have the Son of God, she was never had any sin, not even original sin. She's always been sinless all her life. And that was the first time a pope ever created a dogma without a council. He then listed out 80 heresies that were going on in the world, and these was what he taught. Catholicism is not outdated. It does not need to be revamped. People are not free to just pick your own religion. Protestants are not equal, nor are they okay. Catholics can say that they are the only church. The church can use force if needed. And no, you cannot church, start churches independent of the Pope. No, we don't want separation from church and state. That's not a good idea. And I don't like public, public education apart from the church, nor do I like free speech. Well, that's a big deal. So they had Vatican I, a major council, and it was there that the Pope was declared infallible. If he's speaking in the office of Pope, anything that he says when he's operating in that office is without error. Well, that was kind of a big deal. Even though the Pope got more power, Benito Mussolini came in, tore him apart, and they got relegated to a tiny little box area called the Vatican, Right? Well, in the 1900s, in 1962, Pope John XXIII was willing to break new ground. He comes to power, a man of the people. He said, we got to update this thing. This is not right. He grabs all his brother bishops together. They have this huge council call, and they gather it all together called Vatican II in 1962. They update the liturgy, and he dies. So the next pope steps up, Pope Paul VI. He says, I'm, I'm going to keep on that. We've got to build a bridge between the church and the modern world. And in the fourth and final session, they announced freedom to individuals and groups to be in religions and faiths other than the Catholic Church, and they need to be treated with respect and with tolerance. As an odd move, in 1968, they banned all methods of artificial birth control. It was like super liberal, super conservative. It's kind of like, whoa, that was weird. But then in 1914, in America, something terrible happened. You guys remember what it was? Benito Mussolini was marching and fascism was taking over, and we were drawn into World War I. It took four years. It started in 1914. America didn't get in until 1917. And we were too busy fighting alcohol. It's kind of weird. But anyway, in 1939, a new power rose up. What was that? The Nazis. The Nazis rose up. They overshadowed fascism anti-semitism anti-jew relations went crazy they were thrown into concentration camps slaughtered by the millions well italy and japan joined germany and they became the axis powers 
and they marched into Russia in 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and we got drawn in. And the military personnel killed or missing exceeded 15 million people. More than that were civilian casualties. Add millions of Jews on top of that and you see the impact that World War II had. Well, during that time, theologians rose up in the Christian church. Karl Barth, Rudolf Bultmann, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You ever heard of that guy? He wrote The Cost of Discipleship. Does he know what that means? Yeah. Because he was imprisoned, his seminary was shut down, he was thrown in jail by the Nazis because he defied them. He said, this is not right. They threw him in, and four days before America took his prison, he was killed. Another man rose up, C.S. Lewis. Anybody familiar with that guy? He's one of my favorite teachers of all time. He started an on-air broadcast. He defied the Nazi empire. Well, then we go into the 1900s. The war, all the wars, disappointed everybody. They said, you know what? White guy in power just isn't flying. So you know what? The African-American movement began to rise up and say, you know what? We're tired of being treated like second-class citizens. This is, enough is enough. You don't know what you're doing. You're treating us like garbage. The women's rights, bam, just hit in a huge movement. And they said, you don't know what you're doing. We need to be there to be able to be in the mix. And both movements came up in a huge way. Well, everybody didn't trust everybody. So to protect white man's power, what rose up in 1920? Ku Klux Klan in a massive movement. Their roles and membership expanded. Well, then in October 24th, 1929, panic over the economy, economy hit. Stock market crashed, and we began what? The Great Depression. One-fourth of the whole labor force of the U.S. was unemployed. Despair began to hit. McCarthy era hit. Now we have the Red Scare. Everybody's a communist. I don't know who to trust. Then in the World War II, we dropped the Hiroshima bomb. Oh, my gosh, it's the nuclear age. Nobody feels safe anymore. Then the segregation thing just got too much. Blacks had different buses, bathrooms, water fountains. Finally, enough was enough. And the NAACP launched. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was founded in 1909. Through their impact, great leaders in the Supreme Court ordered the desegregation of the military in 1949, integration of schools in 1952. By the 1960s, people like Adam Clayton Powell Jr., Martin Luther King Jr., through beatings, arrests, imprisonments, they kept marching till they were equal. And sure enough, in 1968, leading a poor man's march, Martin Luther King was assassinated. In all this despair in the 1950s, a young man rose up called Billy Graham. And Billy Graham began to talk about a revival and this idea that there's hope in Jesus. And it just caught on like crazy. Then another man came up and when everyone was in despair, he began to say, talk about the power of positive thinking. His name was Norman Vincent Peale. He then was basically the foundation that launched guys like Robert Schuller with the Crystal Cathedral, and more recently, Joel Austin, if you're familiar with him. But then in the 1970s, a hippie movement took on. The idea that Jesus wasn't just God, but he was a man of the people. And it didn't matter what you wore, didn't matter what you looked like, didn't matter who you were, you were welcome in church. And that launched movements called the Jesus Movement. And that kicked off Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard Movement and many others. Well, where are we now? Now we're in a postmodern movement, right? Now everything's up for reform again. 
questions, good questions are being asked. Sometimes they go too far, some people think. But they begin to go, why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we have this? Why are we here? Why are we in this church? Why aren't we having home churches? Why, are, why do we have some pastor that's suddenly like some celebrity guy where he comes walking up and he's going to tell us what's going on? Why do we got to have half hour of worship? Why do we got to sing a little bit, listen a little bit? Why do we have to have chairs? What about the building? Is that really what God intended? All these questions are flying everywhere. Now people are looking again at the Bible and going, I don't know. Maybe Jesus didn't die on the cross for sins. Maybe this didn't happen. Maybe that didn't happen. And everything is up for grabs all over again. So... Are we going to reform? Are we going to launch new denominations? Do more people have to die? What's, what's going to happen next? You see, if we don't know history, what's going to happen? We're doomed to repeat it. Here's how I want to close in my challenge to you. Enough people have died. And there are times when we need to stand up and say, you know what, you're out of line. But can't we do so with respect and love? And there's times when you need to stop arguing and get back to being unified. There's times when we need to simplify and start saying, wait a second, why are we arguing about everything? If you guys look at our statement of faith online, is it very big? Nope. Here's the core issues. This is what we will divide on. There's very few of them there. Other than that, we will discuss and we will debate. You already saw how many different denominations are in this church. How are we all sitting together? Why are we not fighting more? Because we're back to the core issue. Who is Jesus? What's in the Bible? And we study it backwards and forwards. And we allow that to shape as opposed to preconceived ideas running around and telling everyone they're wrong. I suggest to you this. You do not have to agree with me on everything. The elders don't all agree on everything, and that's okay. There's some issues that we're going to go to blows about. Divinity of Jesus. Is he God? Yes. The Trinity. I'm not moving. But when we start talking about some extra issues, nobody needs to die. We need to have a little bit more healthy discussion. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for a reminder of your movement throughout history and the way in which you have changed us. Lord, you have moved all over the globe. You continue to move even in our midst. We've watched so many people try to clamor out and make their own thing. And Lord, sometimes it's worked and sometimes it hasn't. But Lord, we want to be the people of the word. We want to be the Bereans that examine what you've said. And Lord, we want to be children that please you. Lord, would you bind us together in our hearts in this church that we would never be caught by schism or breaking apart over silly issues. But Lord, that we, as we come together in our love, would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.